Hey everyone, this is Taylor Halverson from Book of Mormon Central. We've had a lot of requests to add our weekly Come Follow Me videos with myself and Tyler Griffin to our podcast. We are very excited to do this. However, just know that we use a lot of visuals in our videos. So if you ever want to see the visuals, check out Book of Mormon Central on YouTube. We hope you enjoy. I'm Taylor. And I'm Tyler. This is Come Follow Me Insights with Book of Mormon Central. As always, we encourage you to look at all the great resources we have on our free scripture study app, Scripture Plus. So we encourage you to jump in, explore, and if you have questions, put them into the comments below. I think you've seen we, re we read all of those, we respond to them. We actually really appreciate the great insights and beautiful stories you've been sharing, and thank you for all the blessings and encouragement we've received from all of you. Today, Alma 13 to 16. Now, let's begin with a quick overview with reference to the scripture itself. You get chapter 13, which is this incredible chapter thrown into the middle of the story of Ammonihah about the priesthood. Then you get the f chapter 14 where you get the, the awful slaughter of the women and children, the burning of the scriptures, and then Am Alma and Amulek are thrown into prison, and they're abused and beaten, and they're th these people are going to kill them, ultimately, if they hadn't been delivered by God. And then you get the story of healing Zeezrom and teaching and baptizing many, many converts inside him, and then you get chapter 16 where the entire city of Ammonihah is destroyed in one day. One day it's wiped out, which is exactly what Alma and Amulek prophesied to these people, and they said, oh, this great city could never be destroyed in one day. There's your quick overview, and it's kind of it, it's kind of disjointed in the idea that here you get this chapter about priesthood that's come into the middle of the story, and it almost feels a bit out of place unless you look at how they're talking about priesthood. It's Alma here in chapter 13 talking about priesthood and he's referring to it as the order of the Son of God. This is what the essence of the priesthood is. It's God's order. It's how God does things. It's the power of God to do his work. Now, I have to share this, uh, this other analogy with you for a minute. We'll get to 14 and I'll show you the comparison between the two in a minute, but I, I need to use this example first. Elder Dale G. Renland wrote a great book about the, the Melchizedek priesthood, and in there he uses the example of the earth. Here's the earth, this, this huge planet, and we refer to it as the earth. But if I take a little speck of dirt and I hold it out to you and you say, what do you have in your hand, one of the possible answers I could give you is I'm, I'm holding earth in my hand. I'm not trying to say I hold the earth in my hand. I'm holding dirt, but we refer to it as earth. I'm, I'm, I'm holding earth in my hand. Priesthood, in Elder Renlund's book, priesthood is a lot like that. We use, we use words in language 
and we, if we're not careful and if we don't define the terms and we don't understand what we mean and what we don't mean, then sometimes we can misapply or misunderstand what, what the whole essence of what we're trying to teach is. In this case, this word priesthood is big. Priesthood is the power of God. It's huge. And sometimes he grants to us a portion of that divine power to people on the earth. We hold a little piece of it, but we don't hold all of it. Okay? So chapter 13 is an incredible chapter about priesthood, but it's not necessarily all of God's power, it's whatever gets delegated to people on the earth. Now watch. Let's take it one more step. Look at chapter 13. Let's dive into our scripture now. Verse 1. And again, my brethren, I would cite your minds forward to the time when the Lord God gave these commandments unto his children. And I would that you should remember that the Lord God ordained priests after his holy order, which was after the order of his Son, to teach these things unto his people. So God, God has all of this power. He gives some of it to people on the earth. To what end? It's to get these people – so the power of God given to people on the earth to get them to turn outward. That is the order of his Son, is to give God's light, God's love, God's goodness, God's power to others. It's to spread liberty and agency. It's to empower people to grow up to become more than they are right now. It's to, to develop. Uh, just in really quick contrast, oops, really quick contrast, look at this. This is the order of the Son of God. What is the order of the Nehors or the order of the devil? The order of the devil that all of our antichrists in the Book of Mormon are going to follow is what's in it for me? What can I get from you? The order of the Son of God is what can I give to you? How can I empower you? How can I serve you? How can I bless you? And brothers and sisters, the key here isn't to serve those who can benefit you in return. The key is to serve all of God's children regardless of their ability to repay us, regardless of their ability to bless us in return. God gives us power to get us to become more like Jesus turned outward because it's in that process that more of his power and more of his love and his knowledge and his light and his truth can flow through us, and it doesn't leave us the same as it found us. It improves us. We get enlarged. Um, when's the last time you were walking down the hallway of, of a church previous to, to 
the time when we couldn't go to church, and you saw an elderly gentleman in your ward, and, and he was walking down the hallway, and he didn't feel well. You could tell that, and he says, oh, I'm not doing well, and he pulled out of his pocket his, uh, his consecrated oil on his key ring, and he took some of that oil, and uh, then he stuck it on his head, and then finished that, and then stuck his hands on his head again, and, and sealed that anointing, and gave himself a blessing. Chances are you've never seen that. God gives power to us, not so that we just use it to bless ourselves. God gives us power to turn outward, to bless other people, to think outside of ourselves. That is the order of his Son. Nothing Jesus did was calculated to give things to himself. Now, in the process, he gains eternity, but that wasn't his focus. His focus was on us. His focus was on God. It was turned upward and outward. And so, as we jump into this story, isn't it an amazing contrast to, as you go through your reading of chapter 13, to look for all of the, the examples that Alma is giving of how God is trying to get selfish and inherently carnal, sensual, and devilish people to forget about ourselves, turn outward, start looking around, who can I help? Who needs me? As President Eyring would ask over and over again, who needs me? And, uh, and start saying, or start believing when Jesus says, he who gains his life shall lose it, and whosoever shall lo lose his life for my sake shall find it. You'll gain it, you'll, and not just it, but you'll gain everything that he has in the, uh, in the process. We're going to add some phrases here that will help you to see some patterns throughout the Book of Mormon. Remember, the Book of Mormon was preserved for our day. So, Tyler, I'm just going to add this up here so we have the Order of Nehor that we'll be talking about in chapter 14, and then this is the Order of God. And as you read the Book of Mormon, you will see this pattern throughout. Who is following the order and the ordinances of God? And what are the consequences of those choices? Who is following the order of Nehor and being self-focused? What are the consequences? I'm going to add two other phrases here that don't really show up right now in the Book of Mormon, but will show up later in the Book of Mormon, but really re um, relate to what's happening here. First phrase is secret combinations. Secret combinations is all about groups of people binding themselves together with oaths and promises to do terrible deeds to others to benefit themselves. Contrast that to what God asks of us. Sacred covenants. Look at the difference. Sacred covenants is what we do when we bind ourselves to others to serve them, to serve God, to get outside of ourselves. All the things that we have been hearing in scriptures that Tyler just summarized, that is sacred covenants, and one of the main purposes of the Book of Mormon is to reveal God's covenants, the covenant path, and the things that we should be doing 
to serve others. And then we have the contrast of what happens to societies who get involved in secret combinations and being self-focused. One of the great things, um, Tyler and I have spent a lot of time in the field of education, and one of the powerful ways that uh, educators are trained in how to teach is to give an example and a non-example. You want something that do this, don't do this. In fact, imagine the Book of Mormon, imagine the story of Nephi without Laman and Lemuel. I mean, Nephi would still be a pretty amazing character, but without that stark contrast of the non-example of Laman and Lemuel, you wouldn't be able to actually show how powerful living the gospel is. So what we have is the non-example, we have many of these stories, and the example. And right here, in these passages today, Alma 14 is the non-example, Alma 13 is the example. And these are put back to back, so as we compare and contrast them, we can see, oh, this is as clear as day, it's black and white, that God has invited me to participate in sacred covenants and to avoid secret combinations, to stand against these things, and to work against my fallen and carnal nature so I can become a child of God and have the order in my life where I feel his power. So look at a look at a 30,000 foot overview of what what Taylor's just laid out here. In the Alma 13 example, you've got Alma who in many ways becomes a beautiful type or shadow symbol for Christ. He he's the chief judge and he's the high priest. And what does he do? He gives up the throne, so to speak. He gives up the, the government position. Christ gives up everything, the, the ruling power that he had up in heaven premortally to condescend to come down among us and to, to serve us, to take our sins, our transgressions, our pains, our sicknesses, our flesh, and all that goes with that upon himself. That's what, in a small microcosm way, Alma is doing symbolically here, is he's showing us the order of the Son, what Jesus does. You think about good parents, you think about good priesthood leaders under the hierarchical order or part of the priesthood that we see in the church. Do, do good parents in the uh, patriarchal order of the priesthood, do good parents look at their children and say, what can I get from you? Or do they say, how can I help you? How can I nurture and admonish you? How can I discipline you in appropriate ways to help you reach your full potential? When you walk into a sacrament meeting, do you look up on the stand and see a bishop drumming his fingers together, looking greedily over the crowd saying, what can I get from them? Because I'm in charge. I have power here. What can they do to serve me? That isn't the order of God. It's not the order of his son. You walk into a sacrament meeting and you have bishops and you have priesthood leaders and you have Relief Society presidencies and young women leaders and, and leaders that are ministers looking at people thinking, what do they need? Dear Heavenly Father, help me know how to serve them. What, what are they struggling with? What are they wrestling with? How can I help them? 
to, to do things after the order of God is not to, to rule over or, or take power from people, and Alma is showing us that through his own life and through the examples that he gives these people. Look, let's just grab some verses now. Look at verse 3 in chapter 13. This is the manner after which they were ordained, being called and prepared from the foundation of the world according to the foreknowledge of God on account of their exceeding faith and good works. In the first place being left to choose good or evil, therefore they having chosen good and exercising exceedingly great faith. Notice they've got this, this contrasting opportunity to choose evil, but they're choosing good. It's beautiful. Now go down to verse um, – go to verse 7. This high priesthood being after the order of his son, which order was from the foundation of the world, or in other words, being without beginning of days or end of years, being prepared from eternity to all eternity according to his foreknowledge of all things. I don't know how you interpret that, but the way I read that is to say, huh, this is the ideal pattern, and it's been that way forever in the past, and it's going to be that way forever in the future. So it's not this idea that the plan of salvation is, if I'll just endure the slog of mortality, then someday I'll get to go up and relax on clouds and just float while people fan me and feed me grapes. That's not heaven. Heaven is a realm where we forever and ever and ever are going to find our greatest joy and our greatest fulfillment and our greatest happiness eternally in serving, in, in loving, in family, in blessing people. Uh, there's, a, there's a pattern here, isn't there, that we see in the way God wants us to exercise priesthood with how, how it works in all of our relationships moving forward after his order. Now, jump down to verse 17. He, he begins talking about Melchizedek, who happens to be one of the, the great characters of the Old Testament that we don't have a lot of verses in the Old Testament about Melchizedek, but look what he tells you here in verse 17. Now this Melchizedek was a king over the land of Salem, and his people had waxed strong in iniquity and abomination. Yea, they had all gone astray. What percentage? They had all gone astray. They were full of all manner of wickedness. That sounds like an overlay, once again, of the world and Christ needing to come to help all who have gone astray, all of us. So Melchizedek becomes this type of Christ, and you'll notice he was the king over the land of Salem. Uh, Salem means peace, right? Shalom. He's the king of Salem, the king of peace. Jesus comes and he spends significant parts of his ministry in a city called Jeru, Salem. Don't know exactly what that means, but perhaps it refers to the city of peace. Ironically, there's probably only one city that's experienced more war in the history of the world than Jerusalem, it's probably Istanbul, Constantinople, but other than that, this has not been a city of peace. There have been so many battles, so much bloodshed, and ultimately the, the infinite blood of Christ was shed just outside the gates of the city of peace. And so 
he's showing this beautiful example of Melchizedek, this amazing man from the Old Testament, as this type or shadow of what we're trying to be, and it's kind of ironic that section 107, verse 1 through 4, tells us that the, the name of the higher priesthood gets called after his name to avoid the too frequent repetition of the sacred name of God and of his Son. Let me jump in on that. That's really fascinating we use this word Melchizedek because the word Melchizedek in Hebrew, uh, comes from two Hebrew words, uh, Melech, which means king, and Zadok or Zedek, which means righteousness. And what is Melchizedek? He is this king of righteousness, and as a witness or as a symbol of Jesus Christ, Christ himself is the ultimate king of righteousness. Now, I want you to think about this. In the gospel, as we pursue the covenant path, we all participate in covenants of the Melchizedek priesthood. And as we do, it provides a pattern for us to become kings and queens of righteousness. And so the name of the priesthood that we all participate in actually signals who we can become through Jesus Christ, kings and queens of righteousness. The name explains its purpose. So the question some of you might be asking in your mind is, why in the world is Alma spending so much time talking about the priesthood and high priests and the order of God and possibly the most wicked Nephite city of that day? Why is he spending this time? I think one of the possible reasons is he's, he's demonstrating an example of a person, Melchizedek, that is so Christ-like symbolically and literally and where he lives and what he's doing and how he's accomplishing God's work that Alma, Alma wants to be like that. He's patterned his life after that. Melchizedek is on, on Alma's mind and he's relating to Alma. Now, let's take that one step further. Here we sit in the 21st century reading this story from our Book of Mormon and he's casting his mind back to an earlier time what does that then look like for you and for me? It's as Taylor was talking about. This isn't a story about past kings and past queens. This is a blueprint. Alma is, is following the pattern, following the blueprint, and he's building his own life with the help of the, the sun working through him as a pattern for us today to say, wait a minute, I can do this too. This is what I need to be doing with my life. I don't – 10,000 years from now, what are you going to look back and say? What are you going to say about your life? Are you going to say 10,000 years from now, man, I wish I would have made more money. Oh, why didn't I spend more time playing video games? Or why didn't I, why didn't I spend more time just enjoying food and sights and sounds of the world? I, I could be wrong, but I don't think anybody's going to do that 10,000 years from now. I think that there will be many who will look back and say, oh, I missed it. I missed the whole purpose of going to earth. And others will say, wasn't it wonderful that God gave us these opportunities to serve 
and to struggle and to wrestle with difficult questions and to go a long time with uncertainty uh, because of what I learned about myself and what I learned about God in the process. That's, that's a beautiful part of mortality is figuring out how to forget myself and follow the pattern that Alma showed me, that he's following a pattern that Melchizedek showed him and others, and that all of these patterns are simply a small microcosm symbolic repetition of the real thing, which is the Lord Jesus Christ. Here's the point for me of Alma 13. It's that God is trying to do with me and my wife and my children and you what he showed us the pattern through his Son, which is to build up kings and queens of righteousness, priests and priestesses, not unto ourselves but unto God, under, under his order and it's, it's beautiful. The language in this chapter is just beautiful. Look at verse 27. Um, actually, let's go to verse 25. He's speaking about the coming of Christ uh, from back in verse 22, the glad tidings of great joy. Every time you see glad tidings of great joy in scriptures, just think of the glorious pronouncements of the Son of God or God is going to be coming to the earth. He's, he's going to come down, he's going to take upon him flesh and become a man and live with us and help us to overcome our struggles. Now look at verse 25. Now we only wait to hear the joyful news declared unto us by the mouth of angels of his coming, for the time cometh, we know not how soon, would to God that it might be in my day, but let it be sooner or later, in it I will rejoice. Notice, here's this prophet Alma, he's saying, I don't know when he's coming. I know it's soon. I hope it's in my day, but I don't know for sure. I like that. I like that God doesn't give all the answers to his prophets all up front, that there are even things that the prophets have to move forward with faith on. That's beautiful, and it should be celebrated. Look at verse 27. Now, my brethren, I wish from the inmost part of my heart yea, with great anxiety, even unto pain, that ye would hearken unto my words and cast off your sins and not procrastinate the day of your repentance. I don't know how to say it other than to just try to say it this way. That is the essence of the order of God, of the order of, of the Son of God, of priesthood, of power, of true leadership, True leadership cares about the well-being and the welfare of people that we can serve. The devil, the order of the knee horse, doesn't care if you're struggling, doesn't care if you're hurting, doesn't care if you, you are lacking in something, doesn't care about you because it's not about you, it's about what you can give me. How can I benefit from you? True parenting, true leadership in the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints is embodied in verse 27, where in the inmost parts of your heart you feel great anxiety even unto pain for your children and for those that you, that you serve because you love them and your deepest desire isn't for your own welfare, it's how can you help them 
not procrastinate the day of their repentance, but to come to know God and to accept him as their king rather than themselves or the devil and the things of the world as their king. So it, for me, verse 27 is the kind of the capstone concept of what it means truly to lead, either in the home or in the church. We want to give you an invitation at this point just to pause and look at some of the most important words you can find in Alma 13 and compare it to Alma 14. And I'll just give you a couple of quick examples of the differences of words. I'll just read a few of these. Uh, Alma 13, right, which is all about the priest and the order of God. We got priesthood, ordained, holy, order, faith, repentance, righteousness, sanctified, joyful, humble, meek, submission, submissive, patient, full of love, long-suffering, faith, and hope. There's probably more in there that I've missed, but you might want to go through and look at those again. And then compare the kind of words we see showing up all over chapter 14. Lying, reviling, angry, wickedness, blindness, guilty, casting out, casting stones, casting into the fire. I mean, these are pretty stark differences, and the words themselves reveal what is going on that Mormon and Alma put these two together, Alma 13 and Alma 14, to make it totally clear to us the distinction between the way of the devil and the way of God. Now, using that contrast, we've, we've purposefully spent most of our time talking about the order of God and the priesthood rather than spending most of our time talking about the order of the Nehors in chapter 14 and the awfulness that's going on here. But I love the way if you, if you do what Taylor invited you to do, looking at words from 13 and contrasting them with 14, by the time you're done with that exercise, you're going to see a pretty good description of what, it's, what heaven is like and what hell is like, what Christ is like and what the devil is like, attributes of both. Now, notice what happens. Chapter 14 begins, Alma's done preaching, look at verse 2, the more part of them, so there are a few people, actually many of them believed on Alma's words and Amulek's and began to repent to search the scriptures, right? But look at verse 2, but the more part of them were desirous that they might destroy Alma and Amulek, for they were angry with Alma because of the plainness of his words unto Zeezrom, and they said that Amulek lied, and so they get their lawyers and judges together and they bring up the witnesses and they say all kinds of things and make all kinds of accusations against these two prophets, and then they cast out Zeezrom, they cast out the men who believe, and then they perform the awful atrocities with the, the wives and the children uh, in verse 8 and 9, and Alma and Amulek have to watch it. And then they come and they say these awful things to them, like, is this what we're going to look like when we're condemned? And they're making a total mockery of, of what's going on here. After that, they throw Elma and Amulek into prison. Now look at verse 14. Now it came to pass that when the bodies of those who had uh, been cast into the fire were consumed, and also the records which were cast in with them, the chief judge of the land came and stood before Elma and Amulek, as they were bound, and he smote them with his hand upon their cheeks, 
uh, and that's when he asked them the question, is this what we're going to look like when we're cast into the lake of fire and brimstone? So you can mark it. That's the first time that they were smote on their cheeks. Verse 15, behold, you see that he had not power to save those who had been cast into the fire. Neither has God saved them because they were of thy faith, and the judge smote them again upon their cheeks and asked, what say ye for yourselves? Now the judge was after the order and faith of Nehor, who slew Gideon. Verse 17, and it came to pass that Alman Amulek answered him nothing, and he smote them again and delivered them to the officers to be cast into prison. Are you noticing an interesting pattern here? This is a judge in Ammonihah who is doing this to the being who used to be the chief judge over all the land, who has condescended, so to speak, given up his throne to descend among the people who is now getting beat up and falsely accused and falsely beaten for things that he doesn't deserve. There are beautiful, uh, painfully symbolic connections here to Christ. So they go into the, the prison, they're told, verse, bottom of verse 19, know ye not that I have power to deliver you up to the flames? It's fascinating when people in, in the devil's camp in Scripture make claims, the end of their capacity is all associated with this life. The most they can do is get you out of this life, and all they can do is kick you, so to speak, into heaven in, in this kind of a context. They can't they can't destroy you eternally. They can just destroy the body, as they've done in this chapter. Um, as painful as this is, look at verse 20. Came to pass when they departed went their ways, they came again on the morrow, and the judge also smote them again on their cheeks. That's the fourth time. And many came forth also and smote them. So there's the fifth mentioning of smiting. Uh, there, verse 21, you want a description of devils? Many such things did they say unto them, gnashing their teeth upon them, spitting upon them, and saying, How shall we look when we are damned? And they're many days in prison, naked, not getting the food and water they need, and then he gives you a timestamp in verse 23, which tells you that from the time that Alma came into the city the second time and met Amulek to this day, it's been three months and eight days. So all of this preaching from chapter 8 to chapter 14, it's been just over three months. That's not going to get you into heaven, but at least it gives you a sense of the time spread, that this didn't just happen in a week. They've, they've been wrestling with this. Look at verse 24, the chief judge stood before them and smote them again and said unto them, if ye have the power of God, deliver yourselves from these bands, and then we will believe that the Lord will destroy this people according to your words. Notice, when you're, when you're in this self-centered thing, you're not going to do any work. You're not going to pray fast, read your scriptures to understand if somebody's telling the truth. You're like, show me a power, show me a sign, and then I'll believe that what you said is true. Yeah, they are trying to change the rules for how the gospel works. They're trying to set up the requirements for how belief works when God has already revealed it, and they're like, nope, it'll be in our way. That's right. Look at verse 25, the seventh time. 
that we get the smiting, and it came to pass that they all went forth and smote them, saying the same words, even unto the last, and when the last had spoken unto them, the power of God was upon Alma and Amulek, and they rose and stood upon their feet. Can you picture this moment? They're, they've been stripped, they've been starved, they're weak, they're bound with strong cords, and these two men stand up on their feet. Look at their prayer, verse 26, Alma cried, saying, How long shall we suffer these great afflictions, O Lord? O Lord, give us strength according to our faith which is in Christ, even unto deliverance. And they broke the cords with which they were bound, and when the people saw this, they began to flee, for this fear of destruction had come upon them. You'll notice they saw a sign, and what did the sign not lead to? It didn't give them faith. What's the word? They fled in what? Fear. That's what happens over here. This is associated with that side, this is associated with the devil and, and hell. They see a sign, now they're filled with fear, and the fear is of destruction, and they flee, they fell to the earth, they didn't obtain the outer door, the earth shook mightily, the walls of the prison were rent, they fell to the earth. Notice the chief judge of Ammonihah and the lawyers and the priests and the teachers were slain by the fall thereof. So they don't even get out of prison, they're killed. So Alma and Amulek come out of the prison and the people are all afraid in the city, but they don't repent either. And so the the promise from the prophets was, your city's going to be destroyed in one day if you don't repent. Well, they don't repent, and in chapter 16, the Lamanite army that consequently had just finished killing over a thousand of the people of Anti-Nephi-Lehi, we, we might call them the people of Ammon and Aaron and Omner and Himni that were Lamanites converted from their 14-year mission in those seven cities, they've just gotten through killing over a thousand of those, those men, and they're like, this is dumb, let's go fight Nephites, so they sneak in to the Nephite lands and come into Ammonihah unannounced and wipe out the entire city in one day in chapter 16. So that's all I'm going to say about that part. Let me go back now to an overview of chapter 14. Why, why would God let Alma and Amulek be treated so badly and the women and the children treated in, in this terrible way, why would, why would God allow such horrible things to happen to such good people who are trying so hard is an age-old philosophical question that's been debated for millennia. Uh, I want to share just a little story that's totally made up. It's just a parable to try to teach a principle. It's, it's kind of silly, but here it is. Once upon a time, there was a man who was carrying his cross that he had been given to bear in mortality, and it was getting a little heavy. He was a little tired of it, and he happened to come upon the room where the, all of the different crosses that people could bear were, were stored, and he asked the angel standing there if he couldn't just maybe exchange his cross for somebody else's, and the angel said, sure. You can put yours down and pick anyone you want. So he put his down, 
and he looked around the room, and there are all these choices, and he noticed one that was made out of gold, pure gold. It was shiny, it was beautiful, and he thought, wow, that would be glamorous compared to my old wooden thing here. So he goes over and he said, can I have this one? And the other said, sure, you can carry that one. He got underneath it, and he couldn't even lift it off the ground, it was too heavy, made out of gold. So he's like, never mind, I don't want this one. And then he saw one made out of beautiful polished oak. It was, it was shiny, it was amazing. He was able to pick it up, but it was way heavier than the one he had been carrying, so he's like, never mind, I don't want this one. Then he noticed one that was made out of roses. I said, are you kidding me? That is, that would be so light compared to mine, and it, it's beautiful, it would smell good, I want that one. The answer said, go ahead. So he went and he picked it up and he quickly put it back down with pokes and pricks in his uh, shoulder, and he said, uh, never mind, I don't want that one. Those thorns, uh, not, not pleasant, I don't want to carry that one. That's fine. This man went from cross to cross around the room, and every new opportunity looked promising until he tried it, and then it didn't work well for him. And finally he came to one that was fairly small compared to the others, and it was made out of balsa wood. <laughs> he picked it up and he kind of put it on his shoulders and it just, it fit. It, it, it was just right for him. And he said, huh, can I take this one? And the angel said, sure. I, I knew you would pick that one in the end. The man said, how did you know that? And the angel said, well, that's the cross you dropped when you first came in. If there's a, a moral to this made-up story, this made-up parable, it would be that sometimes we are given this custom-made set of trials, tribulations, um, issues to have to wrestle with in mortality, and sometimes it does get heavy, and sometimes we wish we could get rid of that and look at others and compare and think, I wish I had theirs or theirs or their set of trials, when in reality one of the elements of faith in the Lord Jesus Christ is a deep trust that he knows what he's doing. We understand that there are some of you who have experienced inordinate amounts of pain and anguish. Maybe it's because of physical disease or, or mental anguish or loved ones who are making choices that are just tearing your heart out and making you feel horrible. Uh, the reality is if we turn outward trying to serve as we turn upward looking to God and trusting that he knows what he's doing when he gives us those individual trials and struggles to bear, then we'll trust him more and spend less time murmuring about our own cross and spend more time bearing it and looking around and seeing who needs more help bearing the cross that they've been given to bear in mortality. Chapter uh, 15 finds us leaving Ammonihah to go to Sidon. Now, by the way, just as a side note, uh, Ammonihah is going to be utterly destroyed in that one day less than four months later. So they're, they're leaving, and it's like three and a half months later when that Lamanite army is going to show up. 
So, uh, Alma and Amulek are getting out of there, and they come down to Sidon, where they find Zeezrom, who is laying sick on, on a bed with a fever. Verse 5, chapter 15, they went to him immediately, uh, obeying the message which Zeezrom had sent unto them, and they went in unto the house unto Zeezrom, and they found him upon his bed sick, being very low with the burning fever, and his mind was also exceedingly sore because of his iniquities. And when he saw them, he stretched forth his hand and besought them that they would heal him. This is one of the, the beautiful examples of many in scriptures where people are making a transition from this kind of a life over to that kind of a life. And that isn't something that just happens, it's not like somebody just wakes up and says, I'm going to stop being like this and I'm going to be like this. Getting rid of the natural man and the natural woman is painful and it hurts. It's like extracting parts of what we've, we've grown to become out of our soul and it's, it's brought Zeezrom down with this very low burning fever. Ironically, who's the person that's going to be healing him here? There's another Christ-like symbol. I love Alma the Younger's life in so many ways of how he, how he becomes a lens for me to be able to see more clearly Jesus and, and the Savior's interactions with me in my own life. Alma knows exactly what it's like to make this transition because Alma the Younger experienced three days of, of a burning fever, so to speak, suffering the pains of a damned soul, making that transition. And so he's able to have this incredible compassion on Zeezrom, knowing exactly what he's going through and uh, healing him through the power of the priesthood. Now, look at verse 15. As the people that were in the land of Ammonihah, they were uh, – they yet remained a hard-hearted and a stiff-necked people, and they repented not of their sins, ascribing all the power of Alma and Amulek to the devil, for they were of the profession of Nehor, and they did not believe in the repentance of their sins. It's a guarantee that if you ever go to the Lord and say, I don't need to repent, I don't need to change, then it's a guarantee that we're not over here <laughs> because the minute we become more like the, the Savior and turn outward and, and try to help other people is when we recognize our own flaw and say, I need to do God's will, not mine. Total opposite of what these people in, in Ammonihah are doing. Now, finish with verse uh, 16. Came to pass that Alman Amulek, Amulek, having forsaken all his gold and silver and his precious things which were in the land of Ammonihah for the word of God, he being rejected by those who were once his friends and also his father and his kindred, his close family, his father, rejected, and he left behind gold, silver, and precious things in his land, his, his prestige was left behind. Let me ask a simple question. If Amulek were standing right here today talking to us, trying to tell us his own story, do you think he would lament? Oh, let me tell you what I lost in, in gaining my faith and my conversion to Christ. Let me tell you about all the gold and silver in the land and the, and the vacation opportunities and the investments that I had and my, my incredible relation. Let me tell you about what I lost 
I don't think he would focus on that for a moment. I think Amulek would say, there is nothing, nothing that this world has to offer you that can even come close to comparing with what God has in store for you if you'll give up your life for him. So as we come to a close of, of looking at these uh, chapters in, in Ammonihah, our prayer, our hope, is that each of us can analyze our own life and recognize where we struggle on this side and where we can do better at taking the things that God has given us and to look outward and spend maybe less time focusing on murmuring and complaining about whatever cross it is that we have been given to bear and spend more time looking for some hands that hang down and for some feeble knees who are struggling under the weight of the cross that they've been given to bear and to, to build them up and grow in our deep trust and our faith that God knows what he's doing. 10,000 years from now, you won't look back and shake your fist at heaven and say, why did you do that to me, if you have the, the perspective of being on the covenant path and trusting in God. We just so appreciate you and how you love God, you love the gospel, we love your desire for righteousness, it's just inspiring to us, and we just really appreciate the opportunity to share our love with you about the gospel and God's beautiful love for all of us.